Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined here by my co-host and star of this show, Sal Marinello. This is The Hot Corner with Coach Sal, episode 420 on the network. Before we get started, just want to make a couple announcements uh, to our group, but um, some positive things. We're going we're gonna to keep the ad reads to a minimum this week. We are starting something new with our podcast group. Um, we'll announce on Monday. But I want to congratulate our podcasters. We have been nominated for Sports Podcast Group uh, Best Baseball Podcast. Um, so I don't know where, where that fits us, but we've been nominated and recognized. And this encompasses all of our podcasts together. So it's our, our network, Real Voices of the Game. Our flagship show, Coaching Kernan, has also been nominated. So uh, that's good news to us. Thank you to our 64,000 subscribers for, for pumping us. Uh, we should be up to 65 by the end of the week. And uh, in case our audience doesn't know, that was a little, a little bit of Led Zeppelin. Uh, the song remains the same. It seems like that's the theme of our podcast. Sometimes we, we're uh, <clears throat> we're out there communicating, educating, researching, bringing voices back that have been marginalized to to help baseball grow in the right direction. And we keep seeing some of the same uh, garbage out there, both from a physical standpoint, from a mental standpoint, and a health healthcare standpoint. So. Um, thought that was an appropriate song. I'll, I'll thank Jim Colonel for that. His emails for me this week. Uh, I think he may have brought up that song to me. So somehow it's stuck. Good choice. Okay. Was well, you got excited pre-show? I know I said that, and that's the first time you got excited about a song. Musical choice, yeah. Yes, if I'm, I'm deficient in your mind, and I'm. It, believe me, I go. I have a hard time sleeping, and I go to bed thinking about that a ton. So I'm glad I I, I made you happy <laughs> today. But. Um, yeah, well, welcome back to the show. A lot of good things happening with our, our podcast network, and um, you're a major part of it. You were there from the beginning, and your show, The Hot Corner, spawned off it, and got a very sophisticated crowd that follows you, and I, based on the, the pre-show notes, it looks like we got another packed episode today. Yeah, I definitely want to keep the thread, Dave, of, of the control over our choices to eat and care for ourselves, but I'm going to talk a little training today, too, so... You get done what you have to get done and we'll get to business. Yeah, I'm good to go. I like that. I mean, self-care, self-custody, self-reliance, self-discipline. I mean, those are all things that I think are important. We we, we hammer on in this show. People have got to be their own first educator and take care of themselves. Can't be relying on everybody else to do that. And they've got to be a little less um, sheepish, shall we say, and following everything they see. And you tell them, do your research, challenge us, poke holes in what we say. God. Um we love to hear dissenting opinions. We thrive on it. Where, where do you want to start today with, with your stuff? You want to start training or nutrition? Why don't you throw something at me? I, I like being on my toes. That, that yeah. keeps, it, keeps it fresh, organic, and so on. Okay, we'll start We'll start with uh, kind of the, it's not the oddball out, but it allows us to go in either direction based on on your, your take on it. We, we traded uh, Instagram uh, videos back. I think it was Australia where it took place. And an Australian longtime coach was up there. I believe it was in the soccer, their football. We call it soccer here in America. But uh, was talking about the, the, the way people were phrasing, um, categorizing 11-year-old athletes. And the term elite 11-year-old athlete kept getting brought up. And his first thing was, there are no such things. There are no elite 11-year-old athletes. These kids are growing. They haven't experienced puberty, girls. Uh, you know, had a beer, hopefully, uh, you know, all sorts of things that, that come into your world, uh, as you grow and it's certainly not fully grown physically or mentally. So what's your take on that? Well, you know, there's so much garbage on social media when, when my buddy sent that to me, uh, my first thought is, oh, what's this nonsense going to be? And it was actually anything but nonsense. And, uh, it, it really, Puts a nail, well, it doesn't put a nail in the coffin because these clubs still have a vested interest in making money and selling parents who want to hear that their kids are great athletes and are going to get a college scholarship. That That's a tough tide to swim against. But th- this is a, a an individual who was in charge with talent development in the Australian National Sports Program, which is foreign to a lot of people here. We don't have that here. A lot of other countries have this system where they develop athletes and funnel them to the ideal sports. And in the smaller countries, just as a little aside, Dave, a lot of people don't realize this. The, re- the reason we haven't 
traditionally or in the last 50, 60 years competed on an international scene in weightlifting, for, for instance, is that all of our great weightlifters are involved in other sports that either involve, I don't want to, I'm not saying weightlifting doesn't involve athleticism, but because your best Olympic weightlifters are super athletic. But our best athletes are funneled in all into all the team sports and to track and to soccer and to other at, uh, other athletic develop. Uh, I'm sorry, other athletic endeavors that take away from that sport. So the reason certain small countries can dominate in a sport like weightlifting and are really dominant on the international scene and even wrestling and some niche sports is that their best athletes are funneled to that particular sport. So that's just a little aside. But going back to this post, this fella was in charge of developing the athletic program for Australia. And it's just fantastic how he comes out and flat out says what most coaches at the high level know, but that a lot of people and parents especially don't know. And the the bald fact is that there's no such thing as world-class talent in sports for the vast, vast majority. Now, I will say what they don't mention here is that the 10, 11, 12-year-olds that they're talking about, in my in my experience, they are already in the in, in our country are already, and I'm assuming in other countries are already in the pipeline for sports like gymnastics and figure skating, where you see younger athletes dominate. You might see that a little bit in tennis, not not as much as it used to be, as tennis has gotten much more athletic over the years. But you will see young kids basically, unless you're a uh, a um, skater or a gymnast where really height doesn't matter, you're not going to really see that. There, there are some swimmers that they know, but the problem with swimming is, again, not the problem. The issue with swimming is unless you're above a certain height on the male and female side, you have to be tall. There's no five foot eight male sprinters and swimmers that are dominating on the uh, national, international level. So there, there's a little bit more of a, a size relation to success now in swimming than there used to be. But these, you, if you're out there and you have a great 10-year-old, a great 11-year-old, a great 12-year-old, that's, you know, enjoy it because the chances of that going on through high school and into college are probably almost worse than trying to win the lottery or as great as trying to win the lottery. Yeah, There's a mental and physical component to that. That's see a lot of parents get pumped up about, again, we go back to social media thinking that, you know, the, the ultimate is that having the greatest 12 year old of all time. And I see, I see a problem in our country and I did not witness this. I would say 15 years ago when I was recruiting actively at the college level and I had, I had a 46 country tour, basically, whether it was in person or I got the live video that I was in charge of, of looking at and viewing. And the thing I liked about the the international games were that they were teaching kids to be athletes first through those formative years. And then once they became athletes, which basically encompasses the things that you talk about week to week that deal with balance and hips. And once they got that down, then they were able to, to really fine tune the skills where not that they were neglecting skills, but they were, you know, everything revolved around getting stronger in the skill component by doing the skill like shooting and dribbling on baseball, throwing and hitting. But from a uh, athletic standpoint, it was, it was doing multiple things, playing multiple sports, developing that athleticism. And once they hit a certain age where you could earmark them, then they started fine tuning those specific skills. But I watch kids now. I posted on this the other day, these skill trainers are killing me because they have kids in the gym doing unathletic things. We forget, it doesn't matter what sport it is. And, uh, they, uh, they're, they hoodwinked, they've hoodwinked these parents into, you know, thinking that this circus act that they're doing is going to help their kid become elite. That word they kept using elite in their sport. And I'll use basketball knowledge. I'll turn it back over to you. The biggest thing was I, w- I walked into a gym. This one person locally wanted me to evaluate skill training. And, uh, my point to him was nine, 95% of the game, this was basketball related. 
is played without the ball. 100% of your workouts are with the ball, where these kids are egocentric. What am I going to do with the ball? So when they go into a game and they shoot two for 10, they walk out thinking that they played poorly. And if it takes you two seconds to get a shot off, think about that. 16 seconds of your game dominated your mental uh, evaluation of how you played in the other, whatever, 39 minutes and, you know, 44 seconds. And that's, that's, these skill trainers are killing us that way. They're, they're, the word elite just aggravates me. Uh, to know well, you've got, you know, the, I call them the Johnny speed ladder and you could see them on Instagram. They put the ladder down. The ladder is garbage. I don't care what anybody says. Nobody look, look at how athletes, I don't, and I don't care if it's a pro the, the pros do things that you people justify their use of certain things because pros do them, but that's ridiculous because pros do a lot of things you'd never do uh, aside from that and included in training. And they do things, they're, they're good in spite of or despite of a lot of the things that you see them do. So that's one thing. But the other problem is, and this is something we've spoken about on the show, is that you've got these coaches that run drills and think the drill itself is the solution or the way to, to develop athletes. And it's not because there's no coaching going on in these drills. The, the There's these quick feet, fast feet drills that I see all the time. And these other drills that are, quote, or that are designed to, quote, develop this neuromuscular response that are anything but and have no, no um, relationship to the movement patterns needed in sport and are not being coached properly. And, and, and it, it goes back to, we've talked about this, it's foot strike. What, what is your body? And in particular, what is your foot doing when it hits the ground? And none of that is mentioned or in, in any cueing or any representation that this is what they're working on. It's just, Hey, this is a drill that, is for five ways to get sprinter speed. And none of the things they show have anything to do with actually running fast. So again, it's this tower of Babel, everyone out there trying to outdo each other. But getting back to our point is this concept that you're going to tell me that at 12, some kid is elite. And, And actually, in my experience, you would rather your kid be competitive, a middle of the pack kid, at that onset of puberty, pre-puberty, then you want him to be the best, especially in this day and age where you have reclassing and kids starting school later and that whole issue with older kids competing. And, and, and if a kid is a year older in the same grade, that's a huge difference when you're talking about these, these formative age brackets and this early, early phase of development. And one, one last thing I'll say about this is uh, when I used to go to these coaching conferences that, that had this international flavor, I got to be friendly with some guys from England and in the soccer academies where they work on the true academy structure, where they bring kids in in school, they go to school, they have phys ed, they have soccer or rugby, and they carry them through with the idea of them playing in the big clubs at the high level and the professional league at the big level. And it's a very common in the UK. And in this, in discussion with these guys, they found that the methods had changed and they were getting more sports specific. And at the same time, they were having less success identifying talent early. And they kind of came to the conclusion that they were doing too much either soccer or rugby early on and sticking to that and sticking to those sports so that by the time they I had identified a kid that was like the 11, 12 year old that they projected to be this stud at late teen, early twenties, they were having less success doing so. And they, they came to the conclusion that they were becoming too specialized and they were starting to make sure soccer kids played basketball, played rugby, and they were actually thinking about bringing lacrosse in and had brought lacrosse in at some of these academies because it allowed them to work on overall athleticism, not just something that was specific to that sport. So the, less, the lessons are out there, but they haven't been heeded. And that, that's particularly true in, our, in the American tennis 
pipeline that I had experience working with young tennis players going back 30 plus years. And those tennis athletes that had achieved success both on the national, international, collegiate scale had been multi-sport athletes. And around that same time, we had a shift over to where these boys and girls who were playing tennis, softball, basketball, soccer in their grade school, middle school, even early high school days were now specializing in sports. And that, that kind of coincided with our drop-off of success with the tennis game. I actually had the opportunity, thanks to Kevin Kernan, to appear on an ESPN show. And Patrick McEnroe was one of the comment uh, was one of the other guests on this. And in my segment, it came this very thing came up, and I had mentioned that. And it was something that Patrick McEnroe had agreed with that there is this lack of athletic of, of real full spectrum athletic development, which is hurting our our uh, sports at the highest level. So, so translated, the the kids are starting to do the activity too early. Is is the the, the special they're specializing too early? So they're yeah. playing one sport too early. So you know, it's it's known that the more um, you can develop a kid's coordination, and that that is early. Their sensitive pattern, their uh, their sensitivity to coordination and related patterns is high when they're eight, nine, 10, up until they're, you know, high school age. But if you don't start working on those coordination moves early, that is going to put a ceiling on their sport skill acquisition. And it's like that old example of when you invest, if you start investing your money, when you get into the job market at 22, 23 versus waiting until you're 30, there's a huge difference when you get to the later stages of your life. It's the same thing with this coordination. If you're not investing in developing your young athletes coordination early and the speed ladder is not coordination, a speed ladder is a a learned structured pattern. Uh, If you're not working on coordination early, you're limiting your athletes skill acquisition potential. What what are some, cause I, I use the ladder a little bit for my kids and maybe that was a mistake. We, uh, we did it for to, to actually to get them. This was really early when they were like two and three years old, just to kind of get them precise with their feet, learn how to move their legs and feet in a different way. Um, we we don't use it now when they're older. We use it for show, like when they do dribbling exhibitions in front of people. We'll put it out there, and it looks looks cool, but it doesn't do anything for them. But um, what what are some coordination things that young kids could do in lieu of a ladder? Or we have a balance ball. Is that? That's something like one of those half balls. No coordination would be baseline coordination, skipping, jumping rope. You could use some of those patterns that you incorporate with a a speed ladder, but not in the way you use the speed ladder. If you watch uh, a kid or or even an older athlete, whether it's a professional college, whatever, you watch them, their heads down. Their posture is forward and down. It's not the posture you want to be in to a sport. So just do some of those patterns in a, in a 360 environment, not a step here, step there. Or if you step on the ladder strip, you're somehow doing it wrong because you're you're not doing something that has any correlation. You're just teaching the body that when it moves that way, your head's got to be down. Those Those are very strong... I'll use the term attractor. If every time you're doing that level of, of exercise and you're in that head down, hunched up posture where you're not getting a complete shoulder rotation when you're running or moving quickly, or you're not a, not a natural upper body, then you're not helping yourself. And those, uh, I wouldn't call them overly structured you know, all everything is forward, then everything is lateral. Well, where's the rotation? Where is the transition from those one plane to the other? You have those three planes we move in. The sagittal plane, which is when you're you're in your typical forward and back movement that you would do on a ladder. The frontal plane, where you would do a, a lateral movement, and then your rotational plane, which you get none of in the ladder. And move transitioning from either of those into and out of rotational into trans, uh, transverse plane is the one of the keys of sport. How well you do that 
especially in field sports. So you're not doing any training, and this carries to the weight room. Most weight room training in machines especially, which are nonsense, Smith machine especially, and most of your traditional lifts are all in single plane. And so that's another reason that once you get beyond the ability to do certain things properly, you don't need to keep working on them. Those, you know, I don't care what anyone tells you, the deadlift, the squat, bench press, all that nonsense. That's like your multiplication tables, your, your ability to do addition. Once you move on to calculus, you don't go back and spend time doing uh, multiplication tables so you know how to do the calculus. It's a it's a always a, a never ending progression. And to, to go back again, Dave, coordination, have your kid dribble with their left hand when they're righties hit left. All, in my opinion, every kid who plays baseball should switch hit because at an early age, their nervous system is so sensitive to all these different patterns that you can train them and teach them to switch hit and and throw and even throw to an extent from both sides there was this school of thought that if you did that you were going to be less on one side than the other that's just pure nonsense yeah i'm i'm like that that's and i i did that kind of just um without being told when i was a kid so i i'm a a little bit messed up in the fact that i'm a natural lefty shooter i throw right-handed I'm a switch batter in baseball. That was put to by my dad. But I learned how to throw lefty because I could already shoot lefty. I learned how to shoot righty because I could already throw righty. But also in, in sports like basketball uh, or soccer, I learned how to use both feet to pivot and jab where it was it was often seen as a, a negative And they wanted to have what they call a permanent pivot foot where you were just good at having one foot down. They thought that was simpler. We've educated our children on that too, not for the sake of creating an athletic monster, but because things that we talk about, I want them to be coordinated. I want them to have fluidity with each hand. So they can all, all four kids can write with either hand. They can throw, um, they can kick a ball with either foot, stuff that you're like, oh, so what? But I'm guessing and and knock on wood, they've been healthy. uh, They've been successful in their sports, but I think it helps them out academically too, uh, which is why I like music so much, music and art, because, uh, I think working both sides of your body, both sides of your brain kind of go hand in hand. Well, there's a huge cognitive connection to that, which people also overlook. And we've talked about on the show and the other show that you look at these kids that can't skip. That That's also a, a developmental issue. That's a, All kids should be able to skip by the time they're in kindergarten, first grade. And I'll get very high level. And by high level, I mean they're playing at a high level. I don't mean necessarily – they're athletic, but they've achieved a certain amount of skill that allows them to play it up at a higher level, seventh, eighth, ninth grade. Can't skip still. So to me, that's you've a kid who can't skip at that stage has kind of tapped out on their skill acquisition. So if they don't grow and allow their size to be competitive with their the level of skill they're playing at. And that, that I mean, if you're playing uh rec eighth grade travel club versus varsity club or a varsity and club level varsity sports, you're going to have a problem. I see that all the time. I have these older uh, yet not bigger kids that have very good skill and have very low athleticism. Those are the kids that are not going to be in the mix when you get into that 10th 11th 12th grade phase yeah no i i, I think you, you hit a good point for our audience there's an there's such an inertia for immediate success and the wrong things i go back to um i was most enamored with the way these two countries built, and i don't know what they do in terms of the other ways they uh, enhance their athletes i won't get into that but when i recruited china and i recruited russia um you know, pardon our political views, uh, views on those countries. They had such a deliberate approach to developing their athletes where our American people will go in there and they're like, oh, they're so far behind. And they weren't. They were just wanting to make sure that the foundation was built the right way. And I was I took so many lessons back from that in terms of developing players to kind of take your time, do it the right way prioritize the right foundational things instead of being so enamored with, you know, who can do what with a, you know, with a certain kind of spin rate or, 
who can hit the ball the hardest and furthest. You probably go cringe when you watch these kids online. I know Fry gives us a steady diet of videos to watch, but um, I watch kids online. First of all, their bodies look out of shape. These 12, you know, they're 12, 13 years old and they're, they're just, uh, they, they've got bellies. They've got, um, and second, they're not balanced and their hand-eye coordination is just, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's not good. Yet they've been going to hitting lessons or pitching lessons for four or five years. Yeah, and that is something you can get away with in baseball, unfortunately, because of the, you know, there's a closed skill and there's open skill. Open skill is field sports stuff. A great example of uh, open skill is a running back in the NFL, is a point guard or anyone who plays, I mean, in the NFL basketball, but I'm saying, think of what that particular athlete does. I just focus on that. Uh, a corner in the NFL, even more so because they have to backpedal, they have to be able to move laterally, they have to rotate out of those positions and get to full speed and maintain control. Versus, let's talk about uh, the ultimate and ultimate closed skill, the shot put, right? Every throw, every uh, rep should be the same because there's no variability in the environment the field's the same you're throwing it to the same your, your goal is to throw it to the same spot so therefore there's no variability baseball in my opinion at certain certain of the skills are more towards the closed skill than the open skill so you could take a kid and let him hit off the tee let him hit from a a, a machine and disregard a lot of the other things you might need to do to become a good hitter later down the road and that's your great example of if you're just hitting and you're doing nothing else to make yourself a, a better athlete, it, you're going to eventually your ceiling is going to be reached and you're so not you going to get you're not going to get any better. So you and can machine. show you can show proficiency in a closed skills thing like you're saying, like hitting or, or even throwing because it's a you know, they want you to repeat delivery. They want you to repeat the swing, um, even if you don't have the right foundational pieces. It's kind of what you're saying. Correct. Yeah. You're getting good at that very, you know, it's like when they use the squat or the leg press as, or the deadlift as a measure of uh, improving performance. Well, there's nothing about that movement. Some of the best people in the world at those things aren't necessarily going to be a good athlete. You take a good athlete and you could derive almost any test and a guy that's good enough to play in the NFL is going to be able to be better at it than the guy who can't play in the NFL. Here's a great example. Jason Kelsey jumped out of the out of his box and into the stands during the game Sunday to hang out with the Bills fans. And then he jumped back in and I heard people comment about, wow, look at, look at that. Look at that athleticism. Well, of course, the things those guys have to do make them supreme athletes. There's more guys that can do that that you'd be surprised by than they are that can't. But we don't see that all the time because of the nature of the sport. You have to be able to do all those things. Yeah, you wouldn't naturally think a center uh, would, would be able to do do that as well. But it, yeah, no, those are good. Those are, and, and, and using him as as an example in their game, they made a big deal about how he was able to pull from his center position and lead the play on an outside play. That again is something that gets overlooked, but that's a that's an elite athlete, and and we've been so conditioned to look at the aesthetics. Oh, he doesn't have a six pack. He's got a belly. He, he doesn't have that ripped musculature that the gym rat or the bodybuilder or someone in another position has. Well, the reason is you don't need that. Those aesthetic visual cues have nothing to do with athleticism. That's I like that. And we, we often, and we're, I know we're talking about the physical components. We did touch on the mental, but we often discount linemen as well as not being smart when that may be the position that you have to have the most cerebral capacity uh, to play. Well, I, I, I don't think in this 
day and age, there's a position you can play at that level and not be intelligent. Now, traditional means, let, let's, let's not, without going off on a tangent, and I'm sure you could speak better to it than I, but the traditional means for identifying and, uh, and defining intelligence, I think, have been wrong for years and have left the many people behind and how they teach has left many people behind. And then you take this example of football that at some point is overly mystified to make it seem much more difficult than it needs to be. That being said, to get to the point where these guys are, they're all super intelligent. I don't care how they present, how they appear, other stuff they've done, what their grades were in college. Those guys are all super intelligent to be able to do that, manage what they need to manage on a weekly basis, and put it into action on the field. So that's a little aside right there. No, but it's it's appropriate to what we're talking about. I agree with you. I, I don't want to go deep into it either, but audience knows how I feel about education. And I, I coined a phrase called edugenic harm. Uh, where that position of education in our world has certainly, I think, uh, prevented our, our society from having some some real geniuses out there. I, I, I hate the phrase, and this is not to offend anybody. Um, I used to get mad when I was recruiting players, and they would, they would be coined as learning disabled. And that was not to discount whatever disability they have. But um, I always thought, you know, well, can I hear about the teaching disability that's going on out there? Or... These kids were super learners. And, they and must love kids, you. Yo, they, yeah, I'm, I'm phenomenal. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I thought they were super learners as long as you tap into whatever their learning strategy was. Uh, and, and I took them without question. So, yeah, there's, there's a lot of, I think, genius creativity out there that's been squashed because of what we're, uh, what we're about education-wise. But NFL football, I agree with you. There, if people ever took a look at the stuff these guys have to know um, intellectually, and then what they have to own emotionally, <laughs> forget about the physical part. That I mean, they'd be their their day to day couldn't compare. They couldn't comprehend it with that. Well, we I, I took you down uh, the, just with the word elite eleven year old. We we talked thirty minutes on on that. You you wanted to talk some training components today. Well, so yeah, here's something <clears throat> that gets lost. I don't know if it gets lost. It's not known and. Um, there's this whole, uh, we've talked about it. Uh, I don't know if we talked about it here, if we did, it was a while ago, if we talked it on the other show, but it's something that bears repeating because just like all of these other myths we're trying to explode, you need to keep telling people before they get it. So there's two types of muscular contractions. There's a, a voluntary muscular contraction and there's an involuntary muscular contraction. And the difference is, for an example, uh, a leg curl, or let's say a calf raise. That's a great one because everyone wants to have big calves, right? That's a big point of emphasis. And it's also a point of ridicule. You know, you see these guys in the gym, big upper body, lower body, not so much. And calves usually suffer. And those are the guys that are always on the calf raise machine. And it's similar with bicep curls. So those are great examples of a voluntary muscular contraction. So I'm going to ask you, Dave, to ask you to put your thinking cap on. Keeping the, the calf muscles in, in mind versus the calf raise, which is a voluntary in, uh, contraction, what would be an example of an involuntary contraction? If you'd probably need to have a compound movement, right? So something like a... Uh, a jump rope or a, a bound. You said the first. You said it right there in the first word. Jump. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right. Jump and jump rope. Right. Anything jumping, you're involuntary. It's an involuntary contraction. You're not sitting there and saying, "Flex your calves. Flex my calves. Flex my calves." It's no. I'm trying to jump and touch the ceiling. So let's take it back. The involuntary. Uh, I'm sorry. The voluntary contraction. You'd be lucky to get near, not even, but close to 50% of the contractile capability of that muscle activated. So you're not even using half of that muscle's contractile potential while you're doing a voluntary contraction like the calf raise. However, 
if you were to do a jump, and what I do here is I cue them, not IQ, but I cue them, my clients, to jump and try to touch the ceiling. And that is the best explanation of an involuntary muscular contraction. And it's not just limited to your calves. It's limited to everything that's involved with producing that movement. In that involuntary contraction, you're getting close to 90% of the contractile capability of that of those muscles activated to, to get yourself to jump as high as you can. So that's a long-winded way of saying you'll get better muscular development from doing more exercises that have that involuntary feature to it than you would doing the voluntary feature. And the voluntary feature is basically the backbone of all these nonsensical machine-based workouts and exercises that people do. Yeah. Well, you, you, you talked about the, we see this in baseball, obviously the, the guys look, the aesthetics look, they look bigger, stronger. The, the, the phrase has been coined out there. The athletes today are much better than they were, uh, you know, 15, 20 years ago. People have bought into that. I don't necessarily believe that. Um, I've seen, well, we talk, we look, running the bases, um, taking, you know, basic infield outfield. We've seen guys get hurt doing that. That look like specimens. Um, is, is it because they're spending too much time on the voluntary stuff as opposed to the involuntary, the actual, you know? Sure. And then the other component is the speed. Is the speed needs to be close to the speed you need to conduct or to perform movements in your sport. Great example. We've talked about this. I know the bat swing. The bat swing is probably one of the most violent movements in, in all of sport. And along with the pitch, pitch changes a little bit, but the bat swing, especially with these big hitters, and we're, we're looking at all this explosion of oblique injuries, and it coincides with work in the weight room increasing. And it's not only the wrong work, but it's the wrong work done at the wrong speed. And it's it's work rotational. You've seen, Dave, all of us have seen people in the gym using the weight stack with with some kind of handle to, to replicate that swing action where you're pivoting, you're rotating, but it's done with weights on the stack and it's done slowly. So then you're going to go back out. You've trained your body to produce movement with that kind of resistance at that speed. And then you go out and you go 100% and swing at a baseball. That's why we have all these oblique injuries, these torso injuries, hernias, other stuff, groin injuries. That's all from doing that ridiculous rotation stuff slowly. You know, I, I don't think I might be wrong, but when those when when you're sluggers, look at Roger Maris, not a beefy guy. I bet he never had an oblique injury. I bet Hank Aaron, again, average size athlete, he didn't have an oblique injury. Willie Mays, all those guys, no oblique injuries because they weren't in the weight room and they certainly weren't doing stupid, stupid things that to mimic rotation. Yeah, built bulk. I, I I only heard one, you know, I guess I'll call him older player, talk about weights, and that was Ted Williams talked about if he could go back, he would have spent the only thing he would have done different anything with weights was with his forearms, and he didn't say you know lifting them those traditional curls, but more things that engaged his forearms outside of just swinging the bat, um, whether that meant, and, and there's, you, you, I mean, you could talk to it. There's those things where you, you twist, you roll the rope up. I, you know, we all did all these things. Um, I had little things with a stick I used to do called quick bat to get the quick twitch muscles going, all these little rotational exercises with my hand with something really light. Um, I was very concerned about using heavy stuff, although I did use a sledgehammer sometimes, did use an ax. Well, um, there, you had the best thing right there. All that other stuff, the wrist curl, the roller, that doesn't develop any strength that has any purpose. It's Again, it is like doing the bench press versus doing uh, a push-up with your hands on different spots and your feet in different spots and trying to do a push-up and negotiate that movement, which 
<clears throat> isn't even as dynamic as some of the things the forearm and wrists need to do. Again, that wrist roller, that's super slow. And anything that involves weights involves the, the, especially with men, the inclination to add weight to it to get it heavier. And when you add a weight to make it heavier, it, you do it slower. And, and slower is not just a subjective. It, all of those movements are slow. So what would, again, think of the sledgehammer. You don't have to have a heavy sledgehammer. But if you had like a six-pounder and you were working quickly to hit something, that that is going to be something that's going to dynamically involve your wrists, forearms, and your entire, all of your arms. And that goes back to the concept of an involuntary muscular contraction that's going to make your arms develop and and grow better than doing the single the single uh, station isolation exercises, especially the um, for your your back grip, especially for your back grip. I, I was taught early, and again, we, we I did all those things I mentioned stuff that we, we we've talked about, and I now know are probably weren't the best between the the wrist rolls, the bouncing of the ball, and squeezing it all the way to school and back again, a la Rocky Balboa. But uh, the the thing that helped me the most was understanding that the, the muscles, the tendons, the fibers in your forearm, as it pertains to baseball and basketball too, because, you know, finger movement, was uh, the development of quick twitch muscles in the forearms, um, where I was given a, a, a broomstick, even a wiffle ball bat, and I was given exercises to do, you know, uh, just with, with that. And I was told to do them fast um, to simulate a swing. W- what's your thoughts on that? If, if I'm not giving you a proper visual, I can re- Redescribe it. <laughs> well, I think as long as, and, and there's more expert people than I, but with all of those moves, the, 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 you want to stay as close to the skill as possible. When you start adding speed and trying to do something that is going to help you in, a, in an athletic in, endeavor. And I go back to this example I've used before. There was a Russian coach and scientist called Bondarchuk who and again, we'll, we'll all acknowledge they were using drugs at the time. So that being said, his findings were the shot putters, the correlation between the best shot putters and something they did in training was nothing to do with the weight room. It was the individuals who could throw the implement that was either slightly heavier or slightly lighter than the competition weight implement being in this case, the shot put. So, and they did all kinds of training. So they didn't just train above and below, but he said the best correlation was the person that threw those things the best. So there's something there that I think you can transfer that translates to other sports, the heavy, heavy baseball or heavy, heavy bat doesn't necessarily that doesn't help you, but the one that's maybe slightly heavier, slightly lighter, the, maybe the intuition of the guy who invented the donut for the baseball bat was onto something, you know, without knowing what he was onto, without having necessarily the scientific basis that this bonder Chuck had where he charted everything they did. And so I think there's something to be learned from that. There's, I keep that in mind with all the things that I do when I try to get closer to the, a sport specific movement, which I don't usually do, but when you do do that, I think that's something you should keep in mind. What's it, that's what's that called? The overload underload? I, I guess, yeah. The overload, the overload is more weight, underload is less weight. So it's just like the concept. There's the ideal slope. You should sprint up and sprint down. That can help you build speed. The concept that you know running stadiums or sprinting up a steep hill. We talked about this, I think, on one of our earliest shows. I believe the research is is a six degree incline, which is certainly not some of these hills, and is certainly not the stadium stairs that you see these athletes run. But yeah. uh, similarly, it's a similar concept. Interesting. Okay. What was there other stuff that you wanted to get to with training, uh, or did you want to head to? Uh... I got a couple other topics you shot to me that I'm in, I'm just interested. Well, in. I just think that again, keep in mind that the the involuntary movement is always going to be superior, and uh, the the involuntary movement performed at a high speed is 
is superior to the involuntary movement at a slow speed. So we've talked about it. You could go to my Instagram and see some of those things in action. Everything from the sledgehammer, which would be involuntary at a slower speed uh, versus uh, some of the jumps and some of the explosive coordination movements that I do with resistance. Yeah, I'm impressed at what you do too. You're you're not just a teacher, you're a doer still, and that's rare. And that's I, I, I caution parents when they're out there looking at, at people, uh, beware of the philosophologist, that uh, person that just sits over there and has all these ideas and theories, but never did, can't do, uh, can't show. So you're the total opposite of that, uh, without question. So um, we went on elite. Uh, we, the, in, so within voluntary, I, I, all of my kids, not just my, my children, my wife and I's children, but every time we start a sport, whether it's baseball, basketball, I give each kid a jump rope. Um, costs like five bucks. Um, and that's to me, that's my favorite exercise in the world, jump rope. I'm glad that's an involuntary uh, calf workout. I've, I've done that since I was a kid. I think it's the best. And you can do the, the stuff you mentioned with the ladder. With the, to go all the way back to that, I asked you, I think that's how this got started, was I asked you, you know, what was the negative about it? Other than, you know, is it just the rope or whatever it's made of? And the posture was key to me that, you know, the head down, you know, nothing you're going to do in that body position is going to resemble what you want to do in the sport. And I like that. That was a key distinction. I hope our audience grabbed onto. So, um, well, how, how did you want to, you got a little bit more in you or you want to close it yeah, out? I, I, yeah. Yeah, sure. Well, hit me some, let's hit me with something. Okay. Well, um, I, we, we chatted about, you know, growing your own food, uh, there's this, there's this constant attack on, on farmers right now. And I guess somehow the Amish are connected with it. Um, I don't know. Well, how that was the case. We d- discussed that in Pennsylvania, they did that armed raid yeah. on Amish organic farm that was serving raw meat. Uh, I'm sorry, selling raw milk and naturally raised and butchered meat. So, and, and, you know, I think that's interesting because it, it dovetails into this whole gaslighting movement to think now now somehow farming is the the culprit and the farmers in europe are fighting back they've been protesting and blocking highways and uh, i believe it was in france they were (laughs) spraying fertilizer on the uh legislative buildings and uh this is this nonsense of saving the planet it's the nonsense dave and and i'll Give everybody a, a podcast. You should go listen to a professor uh, soon, Willie Soon, on Tucker Carlson, who goes into the knowables about climate change and our our petroleum products, oil supply, and whatnot. That will change your perspective on. It should change your perspective on how you view this argument. But w- with respect to the farmers, this. All is a concerted effort to get rid of the food supply as we know it and to force us into the fake food food supply, which is going to be a way to control people. And uh, it won't be, a, it's not a pretty potentiality, if that's the right word to use it, to think of no longer being able to get foods that sustain society and sustain the planet, the, this concept that our farming practices, for the most part, have created an unsustainable situation. Now, certainly this monocrop farming, which big food is involved in, is is not good and is ruining the soil and may be a way for the control of this farming to be, uh, to be initiated. They'll say, well, see, we did this kind of farming and it's not working. Well, no one has ever believed that that kind of farming was good for the environment. It was just keep doing it until we can't and maybe we'll figure out another uh, another way to do things but to particularly um, uh, single out cattle farmers as being a problem for the environment really is ignoring the the biology of the planet and we've talked about this and there's there's great books out there you could read one of which is sacred cow which describes in great detail how steer farming is probably one of the best things there is for the, the planet and one of the most efficient methods of developing food from both the, the methods in which 
you're using, you know, here we got, we, here we have this animal that's able to eat off of the land and uh, digest food as energy that no one else and no other creature on this planet can. And with the help of water and sunlight can convert that into densely packed nutrient dense food in meat and beef versus you're going to be told that we're going to get rid of these animals because it's somehow bad for the environment. When those animals fertilize the land and allow other crops to be grown and allow other things to be grown, it's just, it, it boggles the mind. So this movement and is all if pay, you have to pay attention because every day we're we're hit we're hit with more nonsense in this regard. And there was just something that came out yesterday that now they're saying coffee is bad. Yeah. Uh, there's this World Economic Forum lackey who who's telling us that the coffee that we drink emits between fifteen and twenty tons of CO two per tons of coffee. By the way, all of these statistics are BS. They have no way of knowing this. They're gaslighting us and playing us all for fools. This guy who took a private plane from wherever he's from to wherever this meeting was emitted more carbon than ever will be emitted from us drinking coffee. So people have to be aware of it, Dave, because you have to be able to fight back. We're at a dangerous point. We're unelected bureaucrats and business people are going to make decisions that will be powerless to fight back against. So it's kind of scary in a way because this is all a plan. This is not some crazies out in the wood, out in the woods, yelling at the moon, yelling at trees. This is, these are people who will have the ability to change the way we eat and what we eat. They lost me at meat and coffee. <laughs> that's my diet right there. Yeah, they, right. They, people probably, more people might perk up their ears at not being able to drink coffee than at uh, having their beef taken away. Yeah. Oh, they'll, they'll kill. Hey, I want to uh, end the show if you got the time with, I got, I'm going to just read nine, I think that's nine statements. You just, you can say right or wrong. If you want to go into anything, go, go right ahead. But uh, from our podcast, these are some things that people pick out uh, in a good way that, that it tells me they're paying attention. I just want to hammer it home Sure. for them. Okay. The statement, red meat is bad for you, right or wrong? Very wrong. Okay. Um, and you could just say, you want me to go next? Yeah. Okay. You need fiber to be healthy. That's very wrong. Again, need and, and the way it's been touted as cancer preventing is not supportable by the data that's out there if you really look at it. Big Seinfeld episode on this next one around low-fat yogurt. Yeah. Low-fat is the best way to lose weight. Low-fat has been responsible for the increase in obesity, the low-fat concept. So that's as wrong as you could get. Yeah. My my favorite thing is watching somebody eat a low-fat yogurt, drinking a diet, Pepsi, eating three Whoppers. Yeah. (laughs) Wondering why they're fat. Okay. Next one. Calories are all that matter? No, there's calories don't matter. Your macros, your protein matters. If you're eating the right amount of protein, which is a lot, everything else kind of falls into place. So that, that one was calories are all that matters. This one's a little different. Calories do not matter. Cause you know what people are going to say when you say calories are all that matter. They're going to be, then you tell them. Well, no, either way, focusing on calories is like focusing on your weight on the scale. Is it a part of it? Yes, but that certainly to be exclusive of all other factors, no. Okay. This one's uh, and neat. I would add to that the body, the scale matters. Your body weight matters. It does not matter. This this one's kind of an obvious one, but I'm going to put it out anyway. There are no bad foods. Well, that's wrong. Yeah. There are, there's plenty of bad foods. See, here's the thing. People conflate that with means you should never eat those. Of course you should. If you want to have your Whopper, if that's your thing, and here's the, I don't know if I talked about this, but think about the concept of you have 21 meals in a week and you have uh, 84 in a, in a four-week period and you're going to go out and have a, a, a Whopper one day or you're going to have a Big Mac. Of course, should, that's not going to counteract all the other good stuff. But if you're a constant, if it's a constant stream of that, it's bad. I saw another post that said every time you have a drink, you're poisoning yourself. 
Now, at some chemical, biological level, does the concept or does the definition of poison uh, uh, pertain? Possibly. But your, your body is also very good at, at um, detoxifying yourself, and your system can do that. So as long as you haven't ruined your system, just like as long as you haven't ruined your body's ability to process sugar and you're not a, di- a type 2 diabetic, your body can adjust to all those things. The issue is you don't want to overload your body, so you ruin it so that it cannot do its job. I like it. Now, this next one, well, I'm going to skip this one. I'll go to the, the next one. It says carbs are necessary. I don't believe they're necessary. There's no such thing as an essential carb, but there's essential proteins. So uh, carbs are not necessary. Okay. And then the second to last one on carbs again, all carbs are evil. Or well, bad. Once again, that goes back to the concept of uh, there are no bad foods. Uh, there are bad foods, but you can have them. Uh, there are good carbs and there are bad carbs. And again, as long as you're not overdoing the carbs, again, if your diet is bagels and pasta and rice, they're bad. If you're getting the occasional bagel, or if you're going to have the occasional side dish of pasta, again, this goes back to how we've overdone things here and it's kind of cast things in a negative light. So now we have to demonize these foods to get people, or there's money to be made and demonize. If you go to Italy and eat, people are not eating the portion sizes of pasta that we get served here. They are having it as a small aside because they always have a protein involved with their meals. So again, all carbs are not evil. Yeah. I get concerned whenever I see an absolute that's uh usually done for effect. And it's, it's, again, it's for effect, but it, it tries my patience when I see that. Okay. This last one, I I'm, I was positive on all those. So you've done a great job of educating me on our time together. This one, you're going to have to convince me because I'm not, I'm not, neither one of us are doctors, but this one says food addiction is a made up disorder. Um, I think it's a disorder that's been created by society. So I, and it depends on, you know, your definition of addiction, which is part of our problem. We've, we've redefined things such as obesity, such as we've re, uh, qualified numbers of cholesterol, blood pressure. So what was healthy before is now considered unhealthy for the very factor fact that they've changed the definition of it. A vaccine is no longer a vaccine. We saw that. Uh, but I would say it could be a made-up. If you want to say, I'd like to be a little more precise with the language. I think yeah, if change, you're, change the language for it. If, if was... you're going to tell me that that's a man-made disorder, that's a that's a, a, a disease of our environment, just like type two diabetes. I would say a hundred percent. It is a disorder that's been man-made. It's not made up. It was created by our climate of nutritional advice. Yeah, that's a fair answer because the language gave me problems too. I was kind of stuck on it. Um, And and again, you you brought light to it, the definitions we give to things like disorder and addiction. Um, And then, of course, made up is certain to offend (laughs) many people. Yeah. But uh, no, I thought that was good. How do, you, how do you want to close the audience? How do you want to leave them? A great show today, by the way. We, uh, I just kind of tossed, tossed a couple things at you, and we, we ran with it. So I, I like that. These- well, just be, be, again, I, I, want to stay, I want to stay on that theme of be your own expert because that's the only way you can weed yourself through this and, and protect yourself. And we're seeing this, Dave. We saw it in response to the vaccine where we were told – Doing your own research is not a good thing. It's the most ridiculous thing that any of these people could tell you because the people that did their own research turned out to be right. And not to go off on this tangent because we're at an hour, but by doing your own research, and if more people do their own research, we're not going to have these things literally shoved down our throats that we don't want. So do your own research, be your own expert. Yeah, no, good points to end it on. And, um, 
Thanks so much for a great show again today. Thank you for Sports Podcast Group for recognizing our flagship show, Coach and Kernan, and our whole network, Real Voices of the Game. Um, 64,000 and climbing. We appreciate you guys. And then Jaw Bats, looking forward to seeing them in Major League Baseball players' hands this season. Uh, get a discount at checkout on any of their bats. Tanner's using the Maple Bat uh, M110, both righty and lefty. Fry hit a double. You can see that online. The old old dog still got the speed. But um, Jaw Bats, RBG at checkout, gets you a discount. And this is the Hot Corner with Coach Sal, episode 420 in the book. Sal, thanks again, buddy. Thanks, David. We'll see you next week.